Hello and welcome to Research Roundup brought to you by the Primary Care Collaborative Cancer Clinical Trials Group, PC4. I'm Christy Milley and each month we'll be looking at what's new in cancer in primary care research and I'll be talking to authors of recent publications and presentations. Today we're speaking with Dr Kelly Tui, an exercise physiologist and academic at the University of Canberra, and Dr Michael Chapman, a geriatrician and palliative care physician. He's also the Director of Palliative Care at Canberra Hospital and a researcher at the Australian National University. Kelly and Michael's team recently published a systematic review in the Journal of Cancer Survivorship about the effects of physical exercise in the palliative care phase for people with advanced cancer. Welcome, Kelly and Michael. Thanks, Christy. Thank you for having us. So my first question out of the gate is, big picture, is exercise good for you? Because I think, I suppose, you know, for me, it seems logical to think so, but your research really highlights that this is more nuanced when it comes to patients with advanced cancer. So what do we know about exercise in palliative care for patients with advanced cancer? That's a really good question. I guess contextually, um, palliative care is really broad. And I guess it's different for everyone. You know, what people would do in relation to their exercise would be based on their abilities, I think, and sort of where they're at with their journey. But our research was really interesting in that we looked at all the different types of exercise that could be beneficial for people with cancer in palliative care um, to see what would be, I guess, the most beneficial for them. Um, And we looked at different types of exercise, aerobic exercise, light resistance exercise and other exercise, so things like yoga. Um, Because like everyone in general, um, people are at different levels of fitness and different exercises would benefit them based on where they're at. And what we found actually was that a mix of light aerobic exercise and resistance-based training was, I guess, the best exercise for people to achieve results looking at their quality of life, their strength um, and their fitness Um, But what we found really interesting was that the most achievable form of exercise was the light resistance-based exercise, and that seemed to have the biggest effect across this population. So I guess, you know, the exercise would look different for for everybody, and the benefits are are quite um, extensive depending on the person as well. But in general, across the studies that we looked at, we did see improvements in quality of life, strength, and fitness. So really, really important to look at exercise as part of the journey for someone who is going through the palliative care phase, um, you know, as part of their cancer journey. Individualization is, is really, really important. I can't stress that enough when we look at exercise. And can I ask you, Michael, why did you feel that a systematic review was was needed in this area? Yeah, thanks, Christy. It's a really good question. And I, I guess probably a number of different reasons. Um, uh, Kelly's much more expert than I, obviously, in the evidence base in regards to um, exercise uh, for people with cancer. But my understanding of that evidence base is that it, it's it, there's certainly a lot in it, but it's not necessarily focused primarily on the, the, the needs of people who are really sick, who've got advanced illness and perhaps have um, palliative needs, you know, when it's difficult to actually get rid of their illness altogether. A lot of the evidence is obviously very supportive and helpful, but clarifying exactly who should be offered exercise, what type of exercise and at what point in their cancer journey remains pretty unclear and how that should be integrated alongside other kinds of both contemporary uh, treatments and interventions in a sort of an integrated fashion is, is again something that we really don't understand very well. Conscious of that, we thought trying to look at 
something uh, from a systematic review perspective. So that's where you, you try and get as much evidence as you can focus on a specific question with really real clarity about how you're going to compare the different types of evidence you've got access to and try and make some sort of sense of them. Um, trying to, to bring all those things together to try and draw out information about these more complicated questions about how safe exercise might be, how feasible it might be, and whether or not they're actually we can expect beneficial outcomes, as we would certainly hope, from offering exercise to people with advanced illness, advanced cancer, seemed like a really useful step forward. And, um, and so that's why we undertook the study. So thinking about those questions that you've just outlined, you were able to include 22 trials in your systematic review, and they obviously had different ranges in intervention length. So from two weeks to six months, how did you go about the meta-analysis looking at these 22 studies and thinking about the safety and feasibility of exercise for patients with advanced cancer? Yeah, another great question. And <laughs> it's quite a lot to the potential answer for that question. So um, what I thought I'd do is I'd maybe just just to um, talk it through in bits. Um, the first part of doing that kind of work where you're doing um, a systematic review is, is trying to find out what your data is. And that's really trying to search through uh, and figure out what sort of research has been done that highlights the question that you're interested in. Obviously, in our case, trying to figure out the you know the the data that had been previously produced for people around exercise for people with advanced cancer. Uh, so what we decided to do is we decided we'd focus on um, particular studies, studies that included participants who were adults with advanced or incurable cancers, even if they were getting treatment, an intervention which was an exercise intervention which was being offered in a randomised way to the people in that study, studies which included some kind of comparator, um, uh, something that the exercise was being compared to, either being at usual care or some element of a kind of an exercise or physical therapy and outcomes which were relevant to our study as well, which included, as we've talked about already, this notion of safety, whether or not there were adverse events associated with the exercise, the feasibility of the use of exercise in that population, and its effectiveness uh, on health-related outcomes, which we anticipated would include things like quality of life um, and symptoms like fatigue, um, to, to ensure that all of the, the data that we were collecting was going to be in some way comparable. And so that was the way we, we sort of went to find our data. We had this sense of what we wanted to include. We searched the variety of different health research libraries to, to try and find these trials, found 778 articles that seemed to fit um, our initial criteria and then winnowed them down using those um, criteria that we just talked about to try and get the, the 22 that we actually assessed, as you, you mentioned already. So having found our articles, then we needed to extract our data from them. And again, we, we did this a number of different ways, but the, for the safety data, uh, what we, we did was we looked at the ad, the reported adverse events relating to exercise that were reported within those studies uh, and graded their severity using a standardised approach commonly adopted within clinical trials. Uh, and we were particularly focused on adverse events that we thought were plausibly related to exercise. Uh, and, and I guess in saying that, we were conscious that really, really severe adverse events, which could include things like 
my cancer getting worse or me dying during the study were very unlikely to be related to having exercise. And things that were much, much milder, for instance, a little bit of, um, you know, feeling a little bit sore related to the exercise may actually just be part of the impact of the therapy itself. And so what we wanted to focus on were those sorts of adverse events, which seemed in the middle between those two extremes of very, very mild or very, very severe. We then looked at this idea of feasibility, and we, we uh, defined feasibility as having three different parts to it. One was the recruitment rate, or really how easy it was to get people to come onto the study in the first place. Because, um, you know, uh, logically, if you've got a study and you ask a thousand people to be involved and only one of them says yes, it doesn't sound like that's a very feasible intervention. The second was retention, which is really how how many people were able to stay with the study until its completion. And the last one was adherence, which was really around this idea of if the person um, was recommended a particular program of exercise, how easily were they able to stick to it? How many people were able to do that? And then based on other similar studies, though, you know, there's some challenges to sort of finding the best practice to how to determine what a good quality for these feasibility elements were. But based on some other studies, we determined what we thought were, were reasonable kind of comparators to say, you know, this was feasible or not compared to this best evidence. And then we drew out data as well on health-related outcomes. And the way we did this really was just to see in those studies what health outcomes were actually reported. And if they were reported in more than one study, um, as in uh, more than one study within those 22 reported on this particular health outcome, then we felt we had enough data to try and draw that out and to analyse it and to say something useful about it. And then we analyse the data, and that's a very complicated process that I'm definitely not the primary expert within our little team of people that did this work, but we used a, a common statistical method for meta-analysis of a particular test called a Mantle-Hansel test, uh, looking at the binary elements of the adverse events, whether a person had them or didn't have them, uh, focusing on the severity of um, events, as I talked about, that seemed to be most likely related to exercise. We used a slightly different approach for the um, continuous uh, outcomes of the health-related um, outcomes. I may have a symptom at the beginning of my um, at the beginning of the study, which then may get worse or better during the course of the study. So it's something that's sort of there at the beginning and something that may change over time. A continuous outcome rather than being something that's just there or not there. And so we used a slightly different approach to looking at that using uh, things like mean values and standard deviations as part of a, a methodology called the standard standardised mean differences assessment, which allowed some comparison of these data, even when the different studies use different scales and measures, and then use that to then uh, generate a thing called the forest plot to actually be able to, to see what the, the data looked like, whether or not there were significant differences. And then feasibility, as I mentioned, we had these three different elements to feasibility of um, recruitment, retention and adherence, and we used the data that was within, the, within those studies to compare against our sort of sense of what were good ideal standards to be achieved for those different things for each of the studies. We then did some additional 
analysis, which include um, looking at um, uh, the potential impact of bias, effect size, and whether or not there was some heterogeneity within the sort of statistical variance that was reported. So there's a number of other extra bits that were done to, to, to get the, the results that we ended up reporting on. Uh, yes, yeah, so a meta-analysis is always a, a complex beast to try and deal with. And I must say, I'm actually a little bit jealous when you mentioned that you only had um, 700 papers in your your screening, I was I had I was having I was triggered having flashbacks. Our, our last systematic review had ten thousand to to screen through, like seven hundred. Oh, delightful! Yes, that's right. We were patting ourselves <laughs> on the back at that point, I think. Um, but like you say, a, um, a a big big undertaking, nonetheless. Yeah. And Kelly, if I may ask you, what did exercise actually look like for patients with advanced cancer? What did these interventions look like? Um, So that's a a really good question. And I think I gave a little bit of information earlier about that, but there was resistance-based interventions and also aerobic-based interventions and also the mixed-mode interventions um, were studied within um, this review. Um, And the only other exercise intervention that we used was yoga. These interventions were likely to be around three to seven days per week for two weeks to six months. So the average was around 12 weeks for these exercise programs that people did do. I guess the the intensity varied, but it was a moderate intensity mostly that people worked with, although there was some low to moderate intensity programs that we did look at and review. Um, And session duration could have been from 20 minutes to 120 minutes, which was quite interesting when we looked at it. And that included the warm up and the cool down. So when we're looking at aerobic interventions, I guess they looked like walking, um, treadmill walking, cycle ergometer, and even Nordic walking, um, someone used as their intervention, the resistance exercise. Um, So that would be usually around four to 10 resistance-based exercise of the major muscle groups, upper and lower body. Using therabands, free weights, um, and body weights, and resistance-based exercise. So there was a whole range of different exercises that you know that were used within these interventions. I guess one of the, the the things to talk about is also that most of these interventions were supervised. So 16 out of the 22 were fully supervised by an exercise professional, and a further three were partially supervised. And even the uh, further studies, the home exercise um, studies, they were closely monitored by an exercise professional. And there was a quite comprehensive um, assessment carried out at the start of the exercise to ensure that the participant was safe to do the exercise. Um, So I just wanted to highlight that that most were supervised within this review. And I think that's really, really important to understand. So they were structured Um, supervised and there was careful consideration given to their abilities and um, their their health at the time of doing the study. So I really do feel that caution still needs to remain within this population just because of the declining in health and all of the other, I guess, health-related issues that come in for, for people in palliative care with advanced cancer. And there was some, you know, reporting of adverse events and some of the programs didn't report on adverse events. Um, So we need to still remain sort of cautious with the way that we do prescribe exercise for people within this group to ensure their safety. And you kind of touched on it there, Kelly, you know, talking about a a palliative care 
context, this is a very specific cohort of patients and, you know, they have multimorbidity and other conditions. So looking at your results, were there any particular factors that affected the success of an intervention? And overall, what were the kind of benefits or disadvantages that you identified looking at exercise for these patients? Um, That's a really good question. And one that's, um, I can answer based on sort of what we've seen, but also letting you know that there wasn't a lot of information around that. And I guess that's what we really need to understand further is, you know, what is best to keep people um, adhering to the exercise program so that they can get the best results. So when we're looking at the interventions, a couple of the studies reported that resistance-based, light resistance-based training was best in relation to adherence to the exercise within this population. But looking at it as a whole, it needs to be individually prescribed based on the person's ability to carry out the exercise. Um, We look at also whether, you know, the group exercise versus individually doing the exercise on their own or doing the exercise at home. And I think we, we don't actually know what would work best within the population. And if I put my exercise physiology hat on, I would suggest that that would also be an individual factor and preference based on on the individual, I think. And this is just the start, I think, of this research within palliative care for people with advanced cancer. So we still have a long way to go to understand what works best generally for everyone. At the moment, we're only using general guidelines to prescribe exercise for people within the palliative care phase, people with advanced cancer. And that needs to change. So we do have a little bit of work to do in understanding that. You touched on earlier how a lot of these interventions were obviously delivered or supervised by specific healthcare professionals. And of course, at PC4, we're all about cancer in in primary care. So I was wondering if there was anything you were able to tease out in this review around the role of primary care providers or GPs in assisting patients with advanced cancer in terms of these exercise recommendations. I think that is a huge question and I think a lot needs to change within this space. And I think for GPs and for primary care, the main thing is to um, have a conversation around exercise. I think that is that is huge. Um, and, you know, for people to understand that there is a level of exercise that they could participate in and also that exercise looks different on everyone depending on where they're at on the day. So I think exercise, when people look at it in general, they might have an understanding of it that isn't actually accurate for them. So I think if there's a conversation around what it could do potentially for them and also providing a referral if the time isn't there for people to be able to reach out to an exercise professional such as an exercise physiologist or a physiotherapist who has um, expertise in cancer care so that they can get the supervision and the support and the programming that is needed and is suitable for the person at the time. So primary care, the main thing is to have the conversation and provide the referral. And I think ideally in the future, we would love to see, um, just as we see with cardiac rehab, a cancer rehab program where people can be fed into in primary care and have the multidisciplinary team to work with them, um, you know, for best outcomes. And I think exercise fits within this space um, and it's it's getting closer to have it in, in primary care across Um, this population, but we're still not quite there, but we would love to see it there. I'd love to see it there in my lifetime. I think you've both peppered 
throughout this conversation your ideas of of where this is going next and and what needs to happen but our last question is always about that big what is next for you how are you taking the results of this evidence review forward and how can we think about what is needed to change practice i think it's a really really important question and um i think there's probably a couple of different parts to the answer that i would frame um First, as a clinician, uh, I, I think partly what we've been reassured by in doing this meta-analysis is that the best evidence that we have um, for uh, understanding the impacts of exercise for people with advanced cancer and palliative needs is that this is this is a valid, safe, and effective intervention that should be more normal than than it currently is. That it's as Kelly was saying, this is something that we should be. Um, thinking of when we're seeing our patients and and offering and also uh, advocating for these sorts of services to be more widely available than they offer now. Um, I think an important part of that is, um, and, and I think this speaks a little bit to some of the challenges that Kelly's also alluded to in regards to the uncertainties of, of how easy it is to adhere to these kinds of programs for people with advanced cancer. Uh, I think central to this is is the notion of goals, trying to understand and explore with our patients um, what, what's most important to us, what are the things we should be focusing on now, and how would, for instance, exercise be able to contribute towards achieving those sorts of goals. It, it may be that some of the challenges in people utilising exercise in these kinds of studies was because the intervention itself didn't fit the goals that these patients felt that they really had. Uh, And the only way really to be able to reconcile that on an individual basis is us actually having those conversations and exploring those things with our patients. Um, And so I think that's that's really important in all all aspects of care and certainly all aspects of palliative care, but I think very important for this as well. I think another thing for me that's really clear from this work, though it's you know a, a question mark, uh, sort of an elephant in the room that we need to understand more of rather than something we've got an answer to at the moment, is that uh, exercise, as with many other or perhaps all other clinical interventions, is, is probably part of an integrated multimodal approach to improving well-being and improving health for people with advanced cancer in this context and so we we do have some evidence now to say as per this um, systematic review that the that exercise in its own right is helpful but it may even be that used alongside uh, more targeted approaches towards symptom management uh, things that focus on improving uh, our um, our energy levels, like for instance, you know, more nutrition, uh, other interventions alongside these things, that then in fact that the the real impacts of an integrated approach to improving uh, well-being in people with advanced cancer may actually be much more profound, with exercises being a core contributor to it. And so I I think again. I wouldn't feel for myself as a clinician or a researcher that we've kind of answered all the questions here, um, but certainly given ourselves some inkling that that exercise is an important part uh, to the way forward to try and improve care for people with advanced cancer and palliative needs. Well, thank you very much, uh, Michael and Kelly, for joining us today. That was great. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for downloading Research Roundup produced by PC4. You can access the articles and other information in our show notes.
Please let us know what you think about this episode by emailing us at info at pc4tg.com.au or keep in touch via Twitter where you'll find us at PC4TG. And there's also our website, which is pc4tg.com.au.